Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. I'm getting excited about our our segment right now because we're going to be mm. talking about this new HBO Asia three-part documentary series called Traffickers Inside the Golden Triangle. It's going to it's going to uh, drop on HBO Go on the 23rd. Fascinating series. I'm a big fan, I have to say, of the HBO documentaries. So yeah. No one's paying me to say that. I genuinely am. There's an Obama one coming up that I'm very keen to see. I'm currently watching one on uh, Harvey Weinstein, which is a bit tough viewing at times but it, mm. it gets into the whole me too culture of hollywood and i cannot wait to watch this one on hbo go traffickers inside the golden triangle one of the stats that leapt out to me is that the money made in the drug trade in the jungles of southeast asia on our own doorstep is greater than the money made in colombia which we all By think many is multiples the, which we all think <laughs> yeah. you know is the epicenter of global drug production yeah it's a different ballpark, my friend. It, Completely different. It's almost next door. <laughs> I mean, the Golden Triangle is just yeah, up the road. Not far, not far away. Hey, let's get right into our interview. Uh, our two interviewees today uh, want to welcome Dean Johnson, the executive producer of the series Traffickers, and Steve Chow, the director of the series. Boy, it is such an honor to have both of you on today. I can't wait to dig into this. Uh, I watched the first part of the show last night and was just amazed at this uh, Kun Sa, who is the opium uh, king, the opium warlord of, of Burma, of Myanmar, and uh, how fascinating he is. But first of all, welcome, gentlemen. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having Great us, guys. Well, I'll just jump Thanks, straight guys. in. I mean, traffickers inside the Golden Triangle, as I understand it, there's never been an expose this detailed before about the drug trade in the Golden Triangle, not far from Singapore. What inspired you? I mean, people listening might think you were crazy <laughs> to do this. So what inspired you to tackle such a you know, difficult, potentially dangerous mm. subject matter? Well, I mean, to be honest, it was because it hadn't been done. I mean, we were... We had, when we started out the research, we just assumed Golden Triangle must have must have been done a number of times in a documentary series, but we slowly realised that it's Asia's best uncut and un, you know untold secret. It's uh, like you said at the beginning, narcos in South America, all those legendary drug barons, the Pablo Escobars, none of them can touch the profits that are coming out of the Golden Triangle. And right now, the profits are higher than ever before during well, COVID period. Let's just jump in right there. We are mm. Money FM. Just give us a ballpark figures of the kind of monies that we're talking about here, Dean. Yeah, Steve, we're looking at what pennies to make it in the Golden Triangle and the profits. Pennies are- to make methamphetamine. Exactly, Jono. Pennies and to make uh, methamphetamine in the Golden Triangle. And by the time it gets to Jono to, to, to Japan or Australia, what are we talking about? Up to 400000 right? U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars. Yeah, so so four hundred thousand dollar profit on pennies. <laughs> is is yeah, there a is, kilo? Is there an accepted sort of uh, number that people talk about in terms of what what the trade is worth out of the Golden Triangle on an annual basis? There's, yeah, there's estimates that it could be up to between up to 70, 70 billion a year. Wow! Wow! Which is bigger than gross domestic yeah. product. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most countries, many yeah. countries. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's jump in and talk about Steve. You know, when you when you were putting this together, uh, as I mentioned, that first 
the first uh, installment on Kun Sa in Myanmar is just, it's a beautiful um, amalgamation of historic video and this interview that was done by a journalist, the first interview of Kun Sa, uh, and really focusing on that. Um, how did you come across all the footage? How much, you know, there must have been quite a uh, quite a challenge to get all the, the footage together and to have that vision to know what what uh, what you'd be working with in terms of content. Yeah, it was really challenging. And I think, you know, we were very fortunate to get interviews with, you know, Stephen, who was one of the first journalists ever to interview Kun Sa. The interesting thing about, Kun, you know, Asian drug lords, if you will, is unlike El Chapo or, or Escobar, they don't like the limelight. So right. for the most of the time, they shied away. And that's very Asian, as many people would say. Sure. But um, we fortunately had these journalists go in. And we also knew that, you know, to tell a story, we needed to get as much as we could find. And we heard that there was a British filmmaker, Adrian Cowell, who actually kept going into the Golden Triangle from the 1960s when Kun Sa, this massive drug lord, was pumping New York full of cocaine, uh, full of heroin number four. Hmm. And so we, we heard there were 2,000 rusty canisters sitting in the basement at the University of Washington in Seattle. What? And Jono said to me, you know what? Let's just go see what he has. Because when Adrian Cowell passed, his family donated all his film. Film, not even like, you know, videotape yeah, or right. VHS or beta. We're talking about film. Oof. And so Jono sent me down there and we spent so much time, sometimes hand cranking, you know, these, these canis dusty canisters, the film, you know, just to see what there was. And slowly we pieced together the life of Kun Sa. It must and have been like Christmas. Must have been do. like Christmas sitting going through those boxes and every reel revealed something new, new and interesting, huh? Oh, it was. And and the archivist from the university was sitting beside me. She was just as ex excited because very few times do you have a chance to really deep dive into a collection like this. Yeah. And you know, and, and the cost of digitizing is quite expensive as well, you know. So we were very fortunate that HBO went, okay, you know what? For the first time, let's lift the lid on the three mass uh, main drug lords of the golden triangle or three of the key ones at least yeah because that sounds like a safe hobby but, uh, <laughs> this is the part i want to talk about i mean we're talking to uh, producer uh, dean johnson and director steve chow of the amazing new documentary series on hbo traffickers inside the golden triangle now as the producer i talk to you now first as the producer what dean what do you think was the biggest challenges you had? I mean, I'm thinking about the safety element. This had never been done before. How dangerous was it to send a crew into these jungles to try and interview these guys? I mean, I'm looking at your research here. I believe that you had a, a former commando. Did I read that correctly? Or SAS guy that helped you. I mean, how dangerous <laughs> was it and how did you do it? That former yeah, commando so is sitting just... with us right now, guys. Yeah, I have a military background and, and it, it kind of helped. It helped in a way because actually Steve and I both worked in a lot of conflict zones. So um, yeah. we kind of knew how to mitigate risk. But I mean, the biggest worry was when going inside and, and, and making sure we're with the right people and those right people and having just lots of plan B's and plan C's and trying to. But it, it got it got pretty bad at one stage, Steve. We were always in contact with each other regularly and, and every hour. And there was a time when Steve had to go to a really dangerous part of the on the island on episode two where the Mekong pirate was um, story. And well, Steve, you got you, you had a bit of a scare that 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 day. Yeah. So John and I were always staying in touch via certain security uh, means through 
smartphones and apps. And we were trying to chase the story of Noa Kham, this Mekong River pirate, drug lord number two. And we were right beside Sampu Island, his headquarters, where he, he and his men would conduct raids along the Mekong. Hmm. And we were with a monk. We thought we, that would give us a little bit of protection because monks are revered up in the Golden Triangle. It's a very religious, spiritual place. But as we were interviewing the monk on this boat between the island and the mainland, we heard the rustle in the jungle and two gunmen emerged and they pointed the guns at us. And we, for a moment there, the engine was off, we were sitting ducks and we weren't sure exactly what we were going to do. We stared at them, they stared at us, tense moment. Fortunately, they eventually just nodded and walked back into the jungle. And later on, uh, we, we talked to the locals when we got back, when we booted back and uh, they told us, yeah, you know, guys, chances are there were two super labs, meth amphetamine super labs right around there. So, you know, people don't take kindly to strangers showing up in areas in the Golden Triangle. And that's, that really is indicative of, of our exploration, that we were often entering territory that was controlled by the militias up there, because it's a very lawless area, and militias who are working hand-in-hand hand with crime syndicates, pumping out hundreds of tons of meth. And that's one thing Jono, um, you know, has noticed in the last while, that we think that, you know, COVID, everyone's locked down. That's not the case right now. Yeah. You know, what we're seeing in terms of volume of drugs is has increased even while, you know, we're all under lockdown with the pandemic. Wow. And, and they're constantly yeah. they're constantly changing their routes, you know. So it's like the Amazon. I mean, these guys are literally better than Lazada or Shopee or these guys <laughs> can ship drugs. Glo- they, they ship them globally at the rate and, and, and through different routes. And you every time the law enforcement on to one place, they change to another place. So it's. It's a tough thing to crack. Dean, can I just ask, sorry to jump in. So you're talking about episode two, the Mekong River Pirate. Just to give us some geographical context, I don't know how specific you can be, but where exactly was this? So that's right up on the, so the Golden Triangle, this is quite interesting because Golden Triangle, a lot of people don't actually know what is the Golden Triangle, where is it, what does it mean, what does it mean exactly? It literally is a term given to where Laos, uh, Laos, Burma and um, and um, and Thailand join, right in the northeast part of Thailand. And it is the Mekong River dissects that triangle and it's the mountainous, lawless area that, that surrounds that it is the Golden Triangle. And the, the island is literally... Steve, just right in between no man's land, between the three countries. It, technically, that island falls under Myanmar, but um, mm. you know it's it's literally no man's land up there. There's, no, well, there's nobody, pleasing, yeah, there's nobody really pleasing the Myanmar side. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. Now, you with your camera crew obviously found it, and you mentioned there, Steve, that you probably came across a couple of meth labs, and you mentioned the lawlessness, Dean. So, my obvious question here, probably my Singaporean question, is. Why is it lawless? If you can find it, why can the authorities not find it? Or are we talking good old-fashioned corruption here? We are talking a, a large degree of corruption and the fact that, you know, the, it, this area has traditionally been held by different ethnic militia groups. And we're not just talking about, you know, guys carrying handguns or pistols. We're talking about people with artillery. There was an incident where the, the Myanmar uh, drug, counter-drug people went in to raid a place they, they brought them back to a Ford operating base, a number of guys they captured. And then in the midst of this, the militia decided to take these guys back. So they put artillery above this Ford operating base and rained down artillery on these guys till at the very end, the counter drug people were on their knees in front of their Ford operating base, ready to surrender or be assassinated. And the Myanmar military called in a helicopter gunship to try to push the militia back. Wow. So you, you ask, you know, how, why is this a lawless area? 
these people are armed to the teeth. And again, you know, you, 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 you think this is Latin America that, you know, we're talking about violence and guns and, and killings. But it, this is right on our doorstep in the Golden Triangle. You know, uh, both of you gents, uh, and we're talking with Dean Johnson, the executive producer, and Steve Chow, the director of the new Traffickers series on HBO. Uh, now that you've done three parts, it, it seems to me uh, that three parts isn't enough. Do, do you sense that you're going to need to go back and, and keep this story going? The, the first part about the Opium King uh, in Kunsa in Myanmar. The second, you've just been talking about the river pilot in Mekong. And the third, the playboy drug lord. It, it seems like there just must be so many more stories that you can tell. Is that part of the plan to, to keep this series going or, you know, is that even possible? Yeah, no, it definitely is. We've 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 been developing. We've already got a slate of other tra- um, traffickers that we're ready to 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 go to air. No, it's it. Every time one guy gets taken out, another buddy, another one guy fills the void, and I think that comes through in the series. Mm-hmm. There are incredibly, there are a lot of incredible um, characters up there, and um, yeah, we've got another series ready to go. HBO, if everyone tunes in um, when they see the on HBO Go, we will then get the green light to go ahead and see season two. So. <laughs> The more people watch, the more more definite it becomes. But no, they're, 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 these characters are incredible, and and it's greed, right? I mean, these guys are alpha, these alpha personalities, generally sort of, um, and they are just fascinating characters. And they've they've you know there's there's a lot more out there to tell for sure. Here's the bit I don't understand, guys. You're sitting here now talking to us. A few years ago, I wrote a novel, a fairly innocuous novel, and I still got people warning me that you're tiptoeing into dangerous areas. But I didn't make a factual documentary about the Golden Triangle and sit on Money FM talking about it with my faces on it was screen. A, it was a fictional story, yeah, right? Yeah, and you're talking about going back into season two. I'm not tempted fate here, but we know what you look like. We know your names. <laughs> Is there not a risk here of going back? I'm sure neither the, the drug operators or even elements of the country, the government, would be too keen on you poking your noses around again for season two. Would that not be the case, Steve? I think we, we you'll see throughout this series that we really do try to bring all the voices in mm. and get sign-off in a lot of ways. That so You'll see that we have the right-hand person of Kun Sa. You know, we even spoke to the wife of Nwakam. She, in the end, said no to an interview, but she gave us exclusive photos of her husband. So we were very careful, oftentimes, going into territories, first to pay respect to right. those who control those areas. You know, and, and of course, they're, they're, you know, if they can't, if they don't want to appear on camera, then, you know, they don't. But we really do try to make sure, even in, say, a town like Tachulik, um, that town is controlled, depends on, depending on the hotel you're in, is controlled by a different militia. So mm-hmm. when, we, when we're going to go meet someone, we make sure we stay in that area that they control. So there's a lot of careful planning going on to ensure that we can, after the whole filming is done, we can get on Money FM and talk to you guys about the series. <laughs> and then uh, hopefully in the, in, the day, in the next year or the years to come, we can talk about some other drug Yeah. Laws. And when we, we were careful, we chose two that have passed away and uh, one that's in life prison. So, so we, we're, we're good. The, current, the guys that are still, we tend to go after the guys that we can tell a re- retrospective story and not the guys that are still flying under the radar. So 
that helps. What's what's in it for these drug lords to mm-hmm. have you tell their story? I mean, obviously Kunsa is dead, so no problem there. Uh, he's been he passed away many years ago. But uh, for some of these more current guys, uh, is it a is it an ego thing that they you know want to be shown being the big man on campus kind of thing? Or what what's in it for them? One would think that they wouldn't want this story told, even though obviously DEA and other drug officials know who they are. Yeah, so I mean, some guys uh, who work within the ethnic uh, militias up there have a more Robin Hood approach. You know, in fact, in episode two, Norcam, he was, you know, the electricity in his village came from him. The the temple was built by him. The road into the village was built by him. Right. So there's a lot of, you know, they're, they're not simple characters that, you know, they, they, they spread the wealth to protect themselves as mm. well. And so they kind of have this, they justify their uh, their work by saying, look, nobody, nobody else is building roads here. Nobody else is building electricity. That's me. And I, you know, however I get that and means is, you know, I don't, they, they often say they don't want to do it, but they have no choice. And then there are others who in episode three, you'll see the Saisana, um, who flaunt it and, you know, the Ferraris and a little bit of bling. And, and ultimately those guys will get sort of taken down. But, um, mm. yeah, it's, uh, they're, they're complex characters. They'd like to tell. I mean, very often they they feel they have a story to tell. They often legitimize themselves in their own minds. They kind of feel like, you know, this is somehow no, normality for them. And if we, when we approach them, we would build trust and we build trust with the people around them. Um, that's when we kind of get to. I mean, I think they're genuinely interested that we're interested in the why, mm. and they have a. They they always want to tell us why. Yeah. Well, on the question of the why and why they still exist, you've mentioned the criminal element there, but I'm f- I'm interested in the political element. How do the respective governments of those countries feel about you telling those kind of stories, Dean? Well, yeah, it's. A, I mean, the region, the cooperation, in the regions definitely improved over the last uh, twenty years. I mean, the, the, they have, there's, a, there's an annual regional sit down between all the different uh, narcotic suppression units in the region, and you know, there's a lot of sharing, but it, traditionally. In ASEAN, as we know, not, it's not always easy to, I mean, secrets are power, power, knowledge is power. So sharing what you know or pointing fingers at the other, you know, you've got this guy, we're trying to get him, why you don't give him up, why are you protecting him? That stuff is still difficult. You know, it's still a big problem. Certain countries are, um, certain countries are just not pulling their weight. Um, and there are some countries doing fantastic work in the region. Um, and so it's, yeah. You know, one of those. Yeah, yeah at the moment, uh, La- Laos is a is a is a is a bit of a sticky point because Laos has a, a lot of transiting through that country. Mm. Yeah. So I think regionally, um, everybody else seems to be cooperating, um, even China. To well, some point. And, and being a seventy billion dollar a year uh, industry, I would imagine that there are more than a few people that don't want it to go away. Yeah, and they're paving <laughs> roads and they're building infrastructure. It's almost uh, like a semi-autonomous government uh, operating yeah, here. Yeah, Steve, if I can just ask you in the first. Uh, in the first installment, which we talked about Kunsa, the, the Myanmar, Burmese drug Opium lord king, um, he talked in this interview that he did, the first interview that he had done, and, and he was kind of described as being very personable and a very nice guy in addition to all the horrible things he had done. But he said that he had made an offer to the U.S. government at one point, I'm assuming it was in the 70s, to give up all of his heroin to the U.S. government for $50 million a year for 15 years or something like that. Um, did you guys find in your uh, research and reporting on this that there was any, you know, 
any inkling in this day and age that any of these drug lords would be interested for the good of humanity to make a similar type deal to get out of the business, uh, given the the dramatic uh, you know pain and suffering that it costs you know so many millions of people around the world. Yeah, it's a good question. I think in this day and age, it's more unlikely that uh, a, a nation would make that deal. Um, Back then, Kun Sa was very much fighting for the Shan people while making millions as a drug lord. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the politics behind it then, and, and be, you know, there's no other figure like, like him today representing the Shan people. Got it. So back then, because he was politically involved, the U.S. government actually sent congressional, a congressman over to speak to him about, about this $50 million deal. And he did have some supporters in the U.S. government. Hmm. But in the end... Um, the the president the U.S. president at the time just said no you know what we are not going to make a deal like this with with the drug lord we don't believe he's honest and sincere and and he wasn't also the only player so even if he agreed to burn his opium fields you know there would be others yeah. that would rise up yeah. so in the end the overall viewpoint was it's not worth it but it was a serious consideration and it's a debate to this day whether Kunsa himself was sincere or not right. about this. Mm. Well, I mean, that just ties into my next point, Dean, that they, were, they are such extraordinarily colourful characters. I'm not condoning the behaviour in any way. Just to recap for our listeners, episode one, you've got the Opium King of Myanmar. Episode two, you've got the Mekong River Pirate. And episode three, which I'm particularly intrigued to see, uh, the Playboy Drug mm. Lord of Laos. When you were doing research and when you were doing your interviews, what were some of the things, Dean, that stood out for you? Were there any particular stories, incidents, anecdotes where even you were thinking that's unbelievable yeah i mean to i mean episode one kunsa you know like steve said before traditionally the kind of drug lords in the region are very low-key they don't flaunt it kunsa was had an incredible personality he, he built his own nightclub up there in the middle of the golden triangle he had a tennis court he invited <laughs> some socialites to one stage some 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 British um, minor royals, and they went up and they had like a spa weekend and played tennis. I mean, that Unreal, stuff is right? mind blowing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's like, yeah. and, and he literally had this kind of like villa up in the middle of nowhere. Um, wow. Yeah, that was that was pretty mind blowing. And 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 episode three, you know, the uh, which is kind of our, brings us right up to, to today, and the kind of is more like the Instagram. He was a kind of like a, the the modern day young drug trafficker who didn't get the message, hey, don't flaunt it, right? You'll mm-hmm. get caught. But this guy was going all the celebrities. He was he was into his, his Ferraris. He was shipping cars everywhere, hitting all the parties, and thinking that they, he, his story was he told everybody he was making money. He had a timber business in Laos. But, you know, it very clearly his wealth came from nowhere. Nobody could find out. You know, he appeared out of nowhere with just phenomenal amounts of wealth. And that kind of the profits that are being seen today, that kind of blew my mind. I really didn't think that that methamphetamines could that matter. The, the profit margins in this region and the booming middle class, you know, how Asia has just gone on this trajectory. Yeah. These guys now have got the perfect product at the perfect price being made in a lawless area um, where, you know, they've got it's it's almost a perfect business model. And, and, and the world's a third of the world's population um, in their back it, as their market. Mm. So all these things have collided and it's the scale that kind of scared me. You know, I've got two kids and I just didn't know. I didn't I had no idea there was that much stuff out there. Wow. 
Fascinating. Hey, gentlemen, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much. Dean Johnson, the executive producer, and Steve Chow, the director of Traffickers Inside the Golden Triangle. The documentary series just premiered, uh, started yesterday on HBO Go. Uh, the rise of and demise of three infamous drug pins, kingpins in Thailand, Myanmar, and Laos. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for being with us today. Hope you'll come back with uh, future projects and more insight onto yeah. this fascinating story. Love to, great. And Thanks, stay guys. safe. Much, please, please stay safe. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dean, Dean, bring back all of your uh, SAS now. fighting skills, will you? Make sure you bring Steve back <laughs> alive. <huh? laughs> We're disappearing now. We're going underground. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Take, take care. Thanks, right. guys. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.